Hello everyone, welcome to Stories with a Twang. I'm Nathan. Today, I would like to read a story from Katherine Tucker Wyndham's Jeffrey's Latest 13, More Alabama Ghosts. This week's story is called Granny Dollar and Her Dog. Southern folklore is enlivened by many tales of animal ghosts, particularly ghosts of dogs, but perhaps none is more loyal than the ghost of Buster, the mongrel dog that belonged to Granny Dollar up in DeKalb County. Some people who live around Mintone say that not only the ghost of Buster, but also the ghost of Granny Dollar herself lingered many years around the ruins of her mountain cabin. They saw her ghost, neighbors said, sitting on the steps of the cabin, and they heard the old woman calling her dog long after they both were dead. Other folks told of hearing Granny talk in the high-pitched range she used when she conversed with her pet brown hen. It was an eerie sound, they said, gave them the creeps. Those tales may be true, for if as serious students of folklore maintain, the spirit of the deceased sometimes returns to right or wrong, then Granny Dollar's spirit had cause for returning. Callous thieves stole the penance she had saved to buy a tombstone for her grave. Granny Dollar was tough and fearless and straightforward and it is unlikely that she would rest quietly if in her unmarked grave after such an act of thievery. That theft occurred a day or so after Granny Dollar's death in January 1931, and some people, former neighbors, said the old woman's ghost became active almost immediately. Even without a ghost story about her, Granny Dollar is a legendary figure in DeKalb County. Granny achieved notoriety by living to be at least 108 years old, and probably older. But it is more than mere longevity that brought attention to Granny. Those years were filled with memorable activity. She was part Native American, daughter of a Cherokee, a giant of a man who passed his physical characteristics along to his daughter. Named William Callahan and a half-Cherokee, half-Irish mother named Mary Sexton Callahan, she gloried in her Native American heritage. The site of her birth was on Sand Mountain at a place called Buck's Pocket, a spot destined to become famous more than a century later as a haven for defeated Alabama politicians. Her parents named her Nancy. The exact date of her birth is undocumented, but it seems to have been around 1826. She was old enough to recall the details of the sad removal of the Native Americans to the West in 1835. Years later, Nancy used to tell how her family hid in caves to escape being sent away from their home. Nancy, being young and fleet-footed, slipped out of the hiding places during the night to scavenge food. It was she who spied on the dreaded military men and who brought word to her parents when it was safe for them to leave the cave and return home. The family had moved to Georgia, and she was in her mid-thirties when the war between the states began. That war, they said, broke Nancy's heart. She was not a pretty woman, not the kind a man would likely choose for a wife. Men respected her and maybe even envied her strength. She could run for miles without wearying, and, more practically, she could plow all day and half the night. Straight furrows, too, but no man had asked her to marry him. It was not merely her size, she was more than six feet tall, that discouraged suitors. Even as she was growing up, there was talk about Nancy, Nobody called her Granny then, of course, that set her apart, marked her as different. 
there were reports that Nancy was a conjure woman and that she could foretell the future. In her old age, she did make a little money telling fortunes for strangers who came to see her, but this gift of prophecy served to set her apart in her youth. And some people claimed Nancy could talk to the animals in their own languages, that she could walk into the woods and purely carry on conversations with foxes and squirrels and deer and such. Maybe that was true. Nancy, being raised Native American, was an expert woodswoman who was familiar with animals and their habitats, and she felt at home in the forests. A Native American man might have understood Nancy's closeness to the wild things, but the young Native American man had been banished to the far west, and the white men who knew Nancy were uncomfortable, uneasy around her. So Nancy watched her brothers and sisters, there were 25 of them, grow up and marry and have children to love and to brag about. Nancy helped with the births of some of those children, she was an experienced midwife, and she loved them all. If she was envious, she never mentioned it. Nancy was too busy to indulge in self-pity. Soon after the family moved to Georgia, Nancy began operating a sort of pioneer delivery service. She set up her headquarters in the family home near what is now Atlanta, and hauled merchandise to country stores within a radius of some 30 miles. The wholesale dealer had barrels of molasses, kegs of whiskey, bags of salt, wagon wheels, gunpowder, lead, boots, cured meat, and other goods loaded onto Nancy's wagon. Actually, Nancy did most of the loading herself, and tales of her unnatural strength were added to the other stories about her, further discouraging any courtships. Those stories of her strength also discouraged thieves and bandits for bothering Nancy. Though she traveled alone, often at night, through isolated and rough country with valuable goods in her mule-drawn wagon, Nancy was never molested or robbed. One of the stores on Nancy's route was owned by a prosperous merchant named Porter. She had been making deliveries there for several years when local loafers, men who spent a lot of time sitting around the store whittling and telling tales, began to tease Porter's son Thomas about being sweet on Nancy. Look yonder they'd say. Tom's a-helpin' that Indian woman tote the stuff off in her wagon and into the store. Looks like Tom's done fell in love with a big Indian woman. And they'd laugh at their own crude humor. Tom pretended he didn't hear. Nancy ignored the rough remarks, but she did wonder how Tom felt about her. You don't have to help me, she said to him one day when he came out of the store to heft a barrel off her wagon. I can manage. I want to help, Tom replied, and he smiled at her in a way no man had ever smiled at her before. And don't pay any mind to them, he added, staring hard at the teasing men on the store porch. It must have been several months later that Tom finally asked Nancy to marry him. Some folks said he had to get his father's permission. It was reported that old man Porter threatened at first to disinherit Tom and even to throw him out of the house and store if he married that Indian woman. But he did ask her, asked her properly, and Nancy accepted. She was happier than she had ever been. The time wasn't right for happiness, though, not for Nancy Callahan or for anyone else in the South. The war between the states snatched away a thousand dreams of happiness. Nancy's father, overage but patriotic, joined the Confederate forces and was killed in the Battle of Atlanta, and Thomas Porter also gave his life for the Confederacy. The two men whom Nancy loved, the only men who had ever loved her, were dead. But there was not time to grieve. 
Sherman and his troops came riding through her cornfield and Nancy watched in helpless anger as the soldiers stripped row after row of the young roasting ears from the tall stalks and then trampled the rest of the corn under the feet of their horses. In later years, when she was asked how she managed to survive those dreadful times, Nancy's only reply was, I am an Indian. She did not like to talk about those years. But she did survive, she and the younger brothers and sisters and their children who were still in her care. Sometime after the war ended, she moved back to northeast Alabama and turned again to farming. Years passed. Nancy and older Nancy was a familiar figure on Lookout Mountain. Her neighbors watched her go into the woods and wander in Little River Canyon in search of roots, berries, leaves, and bark to use in concocting her Native American recipes. And when they were sick, those neighbors often sent for Nancy to doctor them with the native cures she had learned as a child. Perhaps it was about that time that people began to refer to her as Granny. It was not merely her age that prompted the title. It was her practice of folk medicine, especially her practice of midwifery. Granny delivered many a baby on Lookout Mountain, but she never had one of her own. Old age did not seem to lessen Granny's strength and vigor. She walked as tall and straight as she always had, and she continued to cultivate her land, to gather herbs, and to doctor the ailing. But she was lonely. With her parents dead and her brothers and sisters gone, Nancy, Granny, had time for loneliness. Time to lament the loss of the happiness she might have had. And then, wonder of wonders, love came again for Granny. She was in her late 70s, entirely too old for such foolishness, the neighbors whispered, when she married Nelson Dollar. He was a few, maybe half a dozen years younger than Granny. Though some folks laughed at the marriage of the old couple and reckoned they didn't have long to spend together, the marriage seems to have been a happy one for both of them, and it lasted for 20 years until Nelson Dollar died in 1923 at the age of 92. During their married life, they never had any money, but they had a roof over their heads and they raised the food they needed. They got along. Nelson was never able to buy nice things for Granny, though he used to entertain her by listing all of the fine presents he would give her if they had money to buy them. Probably the only real present he ever gave her was a puppy, a little cur dog from a litter nobody wanted. I brought you a fine surprise, he told her as he held the scrawny puppy out to her. Nancy took the squirming bundle of fur in her arms and stroked it with her rough hands. The puppy lifted his head and licked Granny on the chin. He must like you, Nelson laughed. He kissed you. I like him, Granny replied. He's a fine dog. I'm going to name him Buster. Buster became Granny's constant companion and guardian, seldom letting her out of his sight. Occasionally, Nelson would tease Granny about Buster. You love that dog better than you do me, he would say. I never should have brought him to you. And they would both laugh. After Nelson died, laughter left Granny's cabin. Granny grieved over the death of her husband. The cabin was quiet and lonely without him, and she turned more and more to Buster for the companionship and comfort she needed. Nelson gave me the only living thing that really loves me, Granny tried to explain to a neighbor, and I never gave him a thing. It troubles me I never gave him a present, and now it is too late. But it wasn't too late. Granny did give Nelson a present. She sold the only cow she had to get money to pay for a tombstone for Nelson Dollar's grave. The simple granite marker bearing his name and the dates of his birth and death were placed at his grave in Little River Cemetery. 
After the marker was in place, Granny somehow felt better. I've given him a fitting present now, one that will last a long time. I think he'd like it, she said as she ran her hand over the lettering cut into the stone. It may have been about that time that Granny began saving for her own tombstone. She had no family to care about marking her grave, and her neighbors, most of them, were as poor as she was. So, whenever she had one to spare, Granny tucked a dollar bill, they were the old, big kind, away in a trunk in her cabin. Some of those dollars she earned by selling vegetables from her garden. Some of them were given to her by grateful neighbors whose ailments she had cured or whose babies she delivered. And some of the dollars were gifts from visitors who came to see the quaint old Indian woman and to have their fortunes told. Granny read palms, foretold the future by the lines in the hand. After she had welcomed her visitors and had made certain that Buster would bite no one, Granny would take a battered pocket knife out of her apron, open it, and trace the lines in the hand of her visitor with the tip of the blade while she disclosed events of the future. Just how expert Granny was at this fortune-telling is uncertain, but her personality and her appearance combined to attract summer residents and tourists to her cabin. Some of their contributions went into her trunk to increase her tombstone fund. She never worried about thieves stealing her money because she knew Buster would protect it. Buster had a widespread reputation as a vicious dog. Once she had put a dollar bill into the trunk, she kept them wrapped in blue tissue paper. No emergency was great enough to induce her to take it out. She'd go hungry before she would spend her tombstone money. If she got too hungry, Granny would make the rounds of her neighbors, offering them an opportunity to put some food in the sack she carried with her. They, poor though they were, shared whatever they had. If you don't help me, I'll have to go to the poorhouse, Granny would say. The fear of being a ward of the poorhouse haunted Granny. So her neighbors did what they could to help her hold on to her independence and remain in her own home. Those same neighbors came to nurse her in her final illness when an accumulation of fluid in her body made it impossible for her to care for herself any longer. Shortly before she died, Granny asked two of her friends to open her trunk and count her money for her they found $23 bills wrapped in blue paper. Granny was satisfied. That'll do, she said. That'll buy me a tombstone. She watched as the bills were rewrapped and put back into the trunk. A few days later, a cold January day in 1931, she died. Friends remembered one of her last requests and a strange request it was. Granny asked that a dance be held in her cabin before she was buried. So, though they considered it a peculiar, almost sacrilegious request, they recognized that the death dance was a part of Granny's Native American tradition, and they carried out her wishes. Her cabin was small, so they had to move her bed to make room for the dancers around her corpse. Then they danced, danced for Granny. Contributions from the community paid for the oak lumber used to build her coffin, and Colonel Milford Howard persuaded DeKalb County officials to pay $5 for a hearse to transport the body to Little River Baptist Church. Colonel Howard also delivered the eulogy. After the funeral services, after Granny Dollar had been buried beside her husband in the windswept country churchyard, the friends returned to her home to give it a final cleaning. Buster was waiting for them. He was old and toothless and nearly blind, but he growled and snarled, charged at everyone who tried to approach him. The Mountaineers held a conference and decided that Buster would die of grief and starvation if he were left at the cabin, and he seemed determined to stay there. 
Chloroforming the faithful old dog was the kindest thing they could do. It was agreed, and Buster was mercifully killed. There was a funeral for Buster too, and once again Colonel Howard delivered a eulogy. Perhaps it was while friends were attending Buster's burial that thieves entered Granny's cabin. With the faithful dog no longer there to thwart them, they boldly ransacked the place, emptying the trunk, tearing open the corn shuck mattresses, and scattering Granny's meager possessions across the floor. They stole the $23 Granny had saved to buy a tombstone for her grave. Shortly after that theft, people passing the cabin at night began to tell of seeing the ghost of a woman, a large woman, prowling around the premises. It's Granny Dollar, they said. She's looking for her tombstone money. She set a store on having her grave marked, and it looks like she can't rest until it's done. Her spirit just can't stay in an unmarked grave. For years, the sightings continued, and each time there was a new report of a restless spirit roaming around Granny Dollar's cabin, somebody would tell again of how determined Granny was to have a proper marker at her grave. Finally, in 1973, Mrs. Annie Young of Fort Payne asked for contributions to buy a tombstone for Granny Dollar. People who knew her or knew about her gave money for the project. It cost considerably more than the $23 Granny had saved. And on January 31, 1973, the marker was placed at her grave. There have been no reports of anyone seeing Granny Dollar's ghost since that day. But Buster's ghost is still around. People passing the ruins of Granny's cabin late at night tell of hearing a low growl and warning barks, as though a faithful dog were guarding something or someone he loved. So, for a second story, I'm going to tell you another experience that I've had. Alabama has had many state capital locations over the years, but none are as fascinating as old Cahaba. Cahaba, at least what is left of it, sits just a few miles outside of Selma, Alabama. My family would go there every so often to walk around and soak up the rich history of the area. This story begins one night close to Halloween. The Cahaba Archaeological Park holds several events each year, but none as popular as the Halloween event. This particular year, they were doing a night-guided tour to some of the park's most infamous locations. From the grave where a man was buried alive to the only remaining structure in the park, this is where my story takes place. The building is two stories and the park arranged for there to be a ghost hunting team in the house that visitors could investigate with. We began our time with the team and we were on the second floor. One of the team members had an infrared camera and was panning it around the room as the team and some visitors asked questions to any spirits. The team told us some stories. One that they liked the most was about a little boy. They had a piece of equipment that they claimed was just for child spirits. It was a teddy bear, but decked out in all of the fancy ghost hunting equipment. So, if anything went near it or touched it, the bear would light up and talk out loud. After a few instances of that happening, I was standing in a corner with a door behind me. I began to feel what felt like somebody playing with my hair on the back of my head. As soon as I felt this feeling, the man with the infrared camera began to exclaim that he captured something on the camera. As he was pointing to one of the windows, there seemed to be a small face looking at us through the window. 
Everyone was super excited and he took several pictures. The interesting thing was that we were on the second floor and there was absolutely no ladder outside the building where someone could have faked the face. The next year we went to the same event and this time as we got to the ghost hunt, it was the same team as the previous year, someone asked them what the best evidence they had gotten in the building was and the man began to tell the story that I just told you. This is one of my favorite spooky memories and I will never forget it. Alright everyone, I hope you really enjoyed this week's episode of Stories with a Twang. Next week, I want to do something different and branch out from the South and tell you some different stories of folklore. Alright, so if you have any stories, please send them to storieswithatwang at gmail.com. I also have the Instagram up and running, so it's just stories with a twang on instagram so just search that and follow it i'm going to start posting some things i think i want to post the pictures and photographs that accompany the stories um, at least the stories that i read from katherine tucker windham she has photographs that she took when she went to these places to investigate and then there's also some beautiful illustrations from an illustrator that she had work with her on these books so if y'all could go follow Stories with a Twang on Instagram, that would be amazing. In the description of the episode on Spotify or wherever you listen to my show, you can now also support the channel by sending a few dollars my way. It would really be helpful. You can also leave any voice messages that you might have, any words of encouragement, any critiques. You can just send me the clip and it'll send it straight to my email. I hope to see you all next week when I tell you more spooky stories. I hope you all have an amazing week and I'll see you again next Monday.